this week's Adam Schefter podcast, another busy week in the NFL, which seems to be the only league producing any sort of meaningful and significant news. And we'll be joined by the former 49ers six-time Pro Bowl offensive tackle, Joe Staley, who recently announced his retirement. And we'll get into why he decided to walk away from the game just now. And we'll be joined by the newest quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, Andy Dalton, who surprised some with his decision to go to Dallas when upon further examination, it really should not be any surprise at all. And we'll get an update on the global pandemic from the NFLPA's medical director, Dr. Tom Mayer, who rejoins the podcast after being away the last couple of weeks. And we also want to say goodbye to the NFL's all-time winningest coach, Don Shula, the man who led the Dolphins to an unbeaten, undefeated season in 1972, was a man who was beloved by his teammates. He was a man who was beloved by his players, who elevated the sport of football in Miami, who really put Miami on the sports roadmap. His contributions are difficult to measure, but the fact that no coach in NFL history has ever won more games tells you a little bit about the man that he was and all that he accomplished. He passed away. Monday morning at the age of 90, our thoughts are with the Shula family. On another note, wondering when sports will return? Stay up to date on all sports news with Mina Kimes, the host of ESPN Daily. Be sure to download and subscribe to ESPN Daily, as well as the Adam Schefter podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, the 49ers six-time Pro Bowl offensive tackle, a man who was a member of the NFL's 2010 all-decade team, Joe Staley. Joe, thank you very much for taking the time. Really appreciate it very much. How you doing? I'm doing well. You know, I don't got much going on right now. You know, just <laughs> uh, I don't think. Well, I, I don't think anybody really has much going on right now. But, well, that, that's uh, also my first couple of weeks of retirement life. What led to the retirement, Joe? Uh, it was a bunch of different factors, but ultimately I think it came down to just my body telling me it was time. It was not something that I went into this past season thinking that I was going to have to even think about that decision. You know, it was really something that I wanted to play 14, 15 years in the NFL. I thought I had two years still remaining that I could play really high-quality ball. Um, I finished the season well, but then uh, I got with a bunch of doctors, and I was dealing with a kind of nagging neck injury. Uh, for the last half of the year and got, you know, with some doctors and kind of realized how serious it was. And then um, it just got to be kind of too much. And, uh, you know, I was putting my family through a ton and, and then I started talking about what my long-term health and future was going to look like. And I got two young kids and he kind of just put that all into perspective and just kind of realized it was time. When did you know the neck injury was serious? Because you said it was not your goal, right? You're meeting with doctors and then they begin to give you an idea when did you know the neck injury was serious, and, and, and how did you not know it was serious to begin with? Well, so, you know, you play a certain amount of time in the NFL. You're dealing with a lot of, like, wear and tear injuries. So, I mean, I kind of had, you know, you have that in your neck, your, your ankles, your knees, all your joints kind of thing. Um, and then I started noticing different ailments with my neck and kind of like my posterior chain, upper back, just kind of feeling out of alignment and just feeling a little bit weird, um, start getting some Stingers a little bit more than I've ever had in my career. Um, but we were, you know, 
this is what I've been waiting for my whole career last season was the chance to go in the playoffs. They're being so bad for so long. Um, go in the playoffs and, you know, make a playoff run, go to the Super Bowl. Um, you know, the ailments just kind of started compounding a little bit, but it was something I could manage and something I could play through. So I wasn't really thinking too much about, well, I got to get this figured out. I got to look at it. I was just doing my daily treatments and trying to manage it as best as I could and uh, eliminate the hits as much as I could during the practices and whatnot. But then, you know, game time was time to go. And just it's just stuff that you kind of put your body through as an NFL player. And it's not any different than a lot of different players. And that's why we sign up for the job we do. Okay, so then when does a doctor, whichever doctor that was, give you the idea that, Joe, this is not a good idea to keep playing? Yeah, so I met, um, it was like probably a month after the season was done. Um, kind of went down there, uh, Dr. Watkins down in L.A., and um, met with him. He's, you know, he's done everybody under the sun's neck surgery. He's kind of like the guy to go to um, if you have a neck issue. Got a second opinion with him and met with him. Was down in the office for like four or five different or four or five hours. And... Yeah, it was just kind of a little bit more serious, obviously, than I was thinking. You know, I thought we were going to go down there. Be, you know, this is a kind of a deal where, you know, some time, a couple of months away from football is going to do you well. Just, you know, get some rest. But he was, you know, pretty concerned about, you know, my age. You know, there's a lot of different factors that go into it. So, um, you know, I just kind of took all that information that I was getting there. Um, and then it was not just that. It was just like the accumulative effect of, everything that my body's gone through for the last 13 years. I mean, some of it's been reported, some of it's not, you know, it's just, you put your body through a lot, especially playing offensive line for as long as I have. And, um, you know, the stresses too, that you put your family through and dealing with all that. I thought it was a good time. What did people not know about what you put your body through in particular that you look back on and even you were amazed that you were able to breathe through something that people didn't realize? Well, I think the thing that, you know, the casual observer uh, unless you're really in the building every day or a player is how many different ailments or injuries or, you know, little things that players just play through. Um, you know, you think when you watch a football game that everybody's out there, they're dressing healthy and everybody's at a hundred percent. And um, that's not the case at all. You know, people are out there playing through a lot of different stuff. Um, you know, some of it's reported, some of it's not. Um, but it's just, you know, it's the nature of the business and it's, you just kind of learn at a young age, um, you know, in high school, basically, if you want to be on the field, best ability is availability and, uh, you better be out there. So I think that's kind of going, uh, a little bit more, uh, to the better side where people are, um, you know, taking care of their bodies a lot more than when I came in the NFL and they're, uh, you know, reporting a lot of different things and getting a lot of different treatments. You know, I know when I first came in the NFL, it was like if you were in the training room, that was like, you know, that's where you did not want to be. So a lot of guys hit stuff and did everything, but it's a lot better now. But you know, I think if far, as far as that as that goes, like the injury front, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of different players that just play through stuff. And um, I think after the season is when you take a kind of stock of where you're at and you do this for another year, especially as you get older. Um, you got a future to think about, so. You thought yours would come back around, though, and obviously that was not the case. What was the moment after me with Watkins coming home, being with your wife, your children? What was that moment that you realized, okay, I'm done here? 
Um, yeah, I don't know if there was like a singular singular moment. You know, I wasn't just a uh, you know, doctor said this, so I'm just going to do that. Um, you know, the season that I went through last year, you know, I kind of I made a little statement because we're not doing any obviously press conference or anything, but you know, when I decided to retire, I made it a statement and I alluded to it that what I thought could have been the, you know, the highlight of my career making a championship run and playing in the Super Bowl was you know, by far the most difficult season that I'd been through, um, not just physically, but also mentally, um, you know, the stress of playing through a lot of different injuries and just what I was putting my body through, um, unknown of what my future was going to look like, you know, continue to do this damage to myself, um, you know, just not being in a good space as far as like stress goes, I guess, um, and managing that. Um, I think that kind of maybe shaped my thinking a little bit going into this off offseason where I was, I really need to take this seriously. I need to look at this for a long time. Um, you know, and then I met with the doctors, got their opinions. It wasn't really what I was, what I was experiencing or feeling, but, um, and then took a little bit more time and really talked with my wife and different family members, close friends, and um, you know came to the decision. And it's a, you know it's a hard decision because, like I said, it wasn't something that I I wanted to do at all. You know, I still feel like I can play the game of football at a high level. Um, I still love the game of football. I never fell out of love with it. Um, but it's just uh, you know for my for my body, for my uh, you know well-being. You know, the full game of football gave me so much. It was so much fun to be around. But, uh, you know, it's time to walk away. And you were kind enough, gracious enough, generous enough to give your team advance warning and keep it secret so they could go trade for Trent Williams. That was really important to me. Um, you know, the, the Niners gave me so much. It's the only franchise I've ever played for, obviously. And, you know, they're everything to me. And I want to make sure that that franchise and, um, you know, the personnel and, Everybody over there, I wasn't leaving them in a situation where, frankly, they were screwed over by me retiring and there was a gaping hole. So I was in constant contact with them during the whole process. You know, I gave them the final decision kind of, you know, I set the deadline of like the week of the draft. But all the way up to they were, you know, very aware of me going to meet with different doctors, getting opinions. You know, that's this is a possibility that I was thinking about. But then, you know, the week of the draft, I, I gave them the final answer at the beginning of the week. And. Um, so they might have had some contingency plans already set in place, and I think they probably had some feelers out there in motion as far as the Trent Williams trade. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I was like, you know, whatever you need on my end, um, you know, I can I'm wait on, wait as long as you want. I'm on no timeline, but this is my decision and this is what I'm going to do. And So I was really ecstatic that they were able to get, obviously, a guy of Trent's caliber. I mean, he's a tremendous player. He's been an unbelievable player, someone that I've watched um, my whole career and try to take things from, so... He's going to fit in great in that offense, and the familiarity he already has with the offense is, uh, is going to be a huge asset. You look at the run that you had with that team, Joe, six Pro Bowls, three second-team All-Pro selections, all-rookie, all-decade team in the 2010s. And I think back to the two Super Bowl losses, and, and I don't, I'm not trying to rub this in or anything like that, but there was the loss in New Orleans to the Baltimore Ravens, and there was the loss in Miami to the Kansas City Chiefs, was one of those Super Bowl losses tougher to accept than the other? I think currently right now, the one in Miami just got as precious in my mind. Um, you know, having a 10-point lead with I think, 
eight minutes left in the game, we felt we were in a comfortable spot. Our defense was playing really well. And then, you know, Patrick Mahomes kind of did Patrick Mahomes things and, you know, came away on the uh, losing end of that, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, I think time obviously will ease those and I'll probably have a better answer down the road as far as what one was harder to accept. I think I mean, they're both unique. We had such a great comeback in the first one. Um, down 28-6, and then coming away with first and goal from the seven-yard line, basically, with like two minutes left and coming up short. So that was a, that was obviously very frustrating. Um, you know, just a lot of heartache in the Super Bowl, unfortunately, for me in my career. But I was super privileged just to be able to play in those moments, you know. Um, first, you just dream of being a professional athlete when you're a kid and then having that opportunity to make it a long career and the opportunity to play in a game of that magnitude on that stage, um, just a dream come true for a, a little kid from Michigan. So uh, I feel very privileged to be able to be in that opportunity. Unfortunately, we didn't come away with the victory. Obviously, I would love to have that happen. Um, but it's not something that's going to haunt me for the rest of my life. And I'm super proud of my career and what I was able to accomplish. You never would have thought, right, as a first-round draft pick, the 28th overall selection in the 2007 draft, that you would go on to play as long as you did for one team, playing 181 games, make the All-Decade team, go to two Super Bowls, have the kind of career that you did. You never would have thought that, right? No. Um, and as, you know, as much as everybody likes to say that they have grand plans for where their career is, you know, I was a kid from Rockford, Michigan, that thought it was just the coolest thing in the world to get a scholarship offer to go to Central Michigan. And I thought that was the pinnacle of my career as a football player. And then, kind of just kept working hard and things kind of fell in place. And, and all of a sudden they were talking about me going to the NFL. And I remember just having distinct conversations with my dad saying, can you believe this? Like they think I'm good enough to go play in the NFL. And, you know, and a couple of months later I'm drafted in the first round and just kind of kept that same work ethic that I had from my high school years that I was taught by my parents and my head coach that I had there, Ralph Munger, um, you know, kind of really set me up for the rest of my career and, um, once I was there in the NFL, in that locker room, I made it a goal of my my first year to – they have a – in the building of the San Francisco 49ers, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but um, in the hallway they've had uh, this plaque, this wall um, of all the players that have played there for at least 10 years for the San Francisco 49ers. And I made a – you walk past it every single day, walk into the team meeting room, and I would go by it every day. And I made a goal of mine to be on that wall. And that was like my goal. It wasn't to be in, you know, pro bowler, it wasn't to be a hall of famer, but it was just to be on that wall. And that was my goal. And I figured that if I could make it on that goal, I was doing something right. Obviously, you know, all that other stuff would come, but you know, that was a goal of mine. So I think of all the things that I accomplished, I mean, playing for one franchise, um, giving my all, my all to have that, um, that happened, be there with one franchise for my whole, whole entire career is something I, uh, definitely hold a lot of pride with, um, they were loyal to me, and I was loyal to them. What would you say to the young people out there who are in college, maybe got a scholarship offer, maybe did, or in high school and dreaming of having that kind of career? How does somebody go from Rockford, Michigan, to Central Michigan, to the NFL? How does that happen? Like, What would you say to these young people out there who are listening and embarking on a career that they hope would even be a semblance of the type of career that you've had? As I got older, I had a lot of younger guys come in, you know, since the line room and really just the team and kind of asked me a similar question. 
about how, you know, how do you play 13 years? How do you get to play for so long with one franchise? And the answer I always had for them was the same, and it's a simple answer, but it really was true for me was just work. And it wasn't about long-term, you know, I wasn't a big guy that set huge long-term goals. It was all about day-to-day, treat the May 14th workout that we're doing that doesn't seem like it means anything the same as you would for preparation for a Super Bowl. Um, every single day matters. Every single rep matters. What you're doing matters. Um, and just give everything you have and don't worry about where you're going to be at in two years. Don't worry about, you know, this guy gets drafted, this guy comes in. If you work and give everything you have, typically things work out. And, um, and that's what I was kind of talking about with my mindset that I had from when I was in high school and, and when I got that from my parents and my high school football coach was just take control of what you can control. And, you know, obviously you're going to have to have a lot of luck. Um, you're going to have to have a lot of influential people um, that you're associated with. You know, I had a great situation in college, getting moved positions, being able to play with Brian Kelly at Central Michigan um, was huge for my career and the coaching staff that he had. But um, I would just kind of get the mindset of one day at a time and just control what I control in that moment. Um, not worry about where I was going to be one, two, three months down the road and don't worry where I'm going to be four or five years down the road. Just about that every single day mentality. Okay, so now let's look down the road, Joe. You're 35. You turned 36 in August. We're all quarantined. We're all sheltering in place. But what is next for you in the next chapter of your life post-football? Yeah, right now I'm not worried about where I'm going to be in two, three years, <laughs> two, two, three months down the road. Um, honestly, right now I'm on this weight loss journey. I'm, I'm really excited about shedding some of those pounds that I've, uh, I've, I've had to keep on for the last 15, 16 years of my life. So I'm down to 260 right now, and wow. um, hopefully I'll be down. A, I want to be about 15 pounds lighter. And then, um, yeah, I'm going to really just take kind of time. I'm not really going to commit to anything in the next probably year. And I'm just going to really enjoy my family and being around at the house, uh, stay busy with different uh, things. I have some, you know, things I'm going to work with to be involved in football a little bit, just uh, some things here or there. But really just going to try to be at home as, as much as I can, uh, enjoy the process of getting healthy a little bit, shedding some pounds, and uh, be around my kids and my wife. I'm always amazed at how much weight offensive linemen can lose afterwards and how they always look like half the person they were. Like, I remember Mark Schlereth. I covered him as a player and then worked with him at ESPN. And I'm like, same guy? Oh, my God. I couldn't believe how different he looked. And there are other offensive linemen, same kind of thing. The amount of weight that they lose is incredible to me. What is well, the yeah, key well, to, to losing that weight? Like, how do you do that? Well, I mean, typically, like, for me, I was a – I was a wide receiver in high school. I got moved to, you know, tight end my senior year of high school, and then I got recruited as a tight end and got moved to offensive line. And so I had to just gain weight my whole life. And I've had to work hard at keeping weight on. Um, it's not just, you know, I wasn't naturally a big kid. Um, and so once I was done with football and, you know, didn't have to keep weight on anymore, I just started eating like a normal human being and then uh, working out more like a normal human being doing a lot more cardio and, um, you know, change up the way I kind of work out and all that. So it was pretty natural. It just kind of fell off um, so far, and uh, hopefully it continues, continues to. The diet changed at all? Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, 
yeah, before it was like to keep weight on for me, I'd have to eat basically anything I wanted, which <laughs> sounds awesome, but it also makes you kind of feel a little bit gross. Um, but I had to, I mean, I had to put calories down all the time and I was eating every two, three hours and it was really whatever I had in front of me. You know, obviously I wasn't trying to like take down a whole entire pizza, but it was, you know, I was eating every two, three hours and it was uh, a lot of calories that I had to do just to keep my, you know, metabolic rate and keep up with that. So, um, now that I'm not doing that, I'm eating more on a normal schedule, kind of doing different things here and there just, uh, Try to stay healthy. And as you look back on your career, the great career that you had, and it was a great career, what will be your takeaway of it, Joe? Oh, man, my career was um, it was very fulfilling. You know, it was a dream that I had when I was a child to be a pro athlete like every every kid in you know, America wants to. That's in the sports that they want to grow up to be a pro athlete and, and play football, baseball, basketball, whatever, you know, just to be involved in sports. And I got to fulfill that dream. Um, you know, it was a lot of hard work and it was a lot of fun. I got to meet so many different special people along the way, um, playing a lot of different memorable games and just had a ton of fun times. And uh, I'll miss all of that. I'll miss, you know, the competition, um, you know, the people that you come in contact with, um, all that. I think, you know, someone asked me earlier, like, what would I like to be remembered? And I think, to someone that gave everything he had every single day and I fulfilled my potential. Um, I didn't leave anything, um, anything left and I gave it my all and whatever comes after that is, uh, is whatever, but it was a fun time and definitely something that I'll look back with a lot of uh, great memories. And if your neck bothered you down the line and there were other aches and pains, would you do it all over again or would you change anything? No, I'm not, not for a second. I'd, I'd love, you know, we, we sign up for all this. We know the risks and we accept the risks and it's a, uh, there's nothing like it. It's the ultimate team sport and you learn so much from the game of football and so many valuable life lessons come from it. And it's a, you know, I think it's a real privilege to be um, in an NFL locker room, not even just an NFL locker room, just a, you know, college football locker room and a high school locker room. You just learn so much about it, about yourself, about others, um, just about, how much you can push through and it's uh, really invaluable. So I won't change that for, for a second. Will you go to games next year or will it be too hard for you to do that? Hopefully there are games to be able to go to. Uh, yeah, I'm for sure going to be around. Um, I've told everybody there in the franchise that I'm not going to be a stranger at all. And I think it will be weird once training camp comes and starts up and I'm not getting ready for it and everybody's going to meetings and working out in the facility and I'm not a part of it. You know, I think it will hit me a little bit there, but um, I definitely am looking forward to being a fan uh, of the 49ers and, and cheering them on. Hey, Joe, really appreciate you taking the time. Congratulations on an incredible career. Really was unbelievable to watch from afar. Congratulations on all you've achieved and good luck in the next chapter of your career. And hopefully we'll get a chance to bump into each other out to, at Levi Stadium here in the near future. For sure. Look forward to it. And there's the former 49ers offensive tackle, Joe Staley, who's used to protecting quarterbacks. On to a quarterback here, the former Bengals quarterback and now Dallas Cowboys quarterback, Andy Dalton. How does it sound to introduce you as Andy Dalton of the Dallas Cowboys? I wouldn't have thought that would have been how you even introduced me uh, you know, a couple months ago. 
but uh, I'm excited about it. I think it's a great opportunity for me. How did that happen? Because as you mentioned, a couple of months ago, you would have been surprised to hear that. And yet here we are a couple of months later where you are a member of the Dallas Cowboys. So what happened, Andy? Yeah, I think um, just once I got released, at at that point I had to figure out, okay, what's going to be best for me? What's going to be best for my future? And uh, just, you know, for the next 10 years for me. And so uh, just weighing all the options, you know, I had – I had several options out there, and I had to figure out what what was the best situation for me to go into uh, that was going to set me up for this next uh, half of my career. And so, um, after weighing everything, I felt like you know going to Dallas was going to be the, the the right fit for me this year. And uh, you know, like like I said earlier, I'm I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be a great opportunity. You mentioned ten years. You mentioned the second half of your career. Are you looking at going to Dallas in a long? term type of way or is just this the next step what's ahead after that you know this is just the next step for me you know i think uh you know i wanted to join a high class organization team that's ready to win and um and be with 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 mike mccarthy who's uh this just his history with quarterbacks you know i think it gives me a chance to come to a, a new place a chance to learn to help deck out deck out any way i can and um you know, and then just to be an asset for this team, obviously I, I bring a lot of experience and, and can bring a lot to the table. So uh, I'm here to help this team win and uh, help in any way I can. And you bring up Mike McCarthy, you bring up Dak Prescott. Do you have any prior relationship with either one of those men? Uh, I do not. So, uh, you know, I, I talked with uh, Mike just right when right when I, I got released, and that was the first time. And you know, I've just met Dak uh, playing against him. And when the idea of the Dallas Cowboys comes up to you initially, which is not a team that people were thinking of, people were talking of New England and Jacksonville, and here comes the Dallas Cowboys. What was your immediate reaction to the idea of playing in Dallas? Yeah, that, that's the thing. You know, I, I I had some other options out there, and for me, it just just weighing everything. You know, what's going to set me up best? You know, just uh, just just with everything, and so I felt like joining this uh, this organization, this team. This, like I said earlier, this team's ready to win, and um, you know I felt like it was the best opportunity, you know, for uh, for this year, and it hopefully set me up uh, for my future. I think that's uh, this was a big picture uh, plan, and um, yeah, I'm excited about. It. Obviously, uh, you know, for for this year, I think it's a, it's a good opportunity opportunity for me to learn and and be around an offensive coach and be around a, a great organization. You know, a lot of people also, again, were surprised. And I don't know why they were, because when I've been asked about it, I say this was the move that made sense to me more than any other. And tell me if you agree with this, Andy, but essentially when you're released in late April, early May, the chances are there's not a starting job out there waiting for you. You're stepping into a team that's, poised to win right now with a great offensive line, with a great head coach. You get to be back in Texas, where you're from, where you start in college. No state tax in Texas. And then the other thing is, we're living through a global pandemic. You have a house in the Dallas area. Was that any type of factor in the sense that in the time of a pandemic, you don't have to worry about packing up and moving and finding a new residence that you're in a home in Dallas and you get to stay in that home in Dallas. Was that a part of your decision at all? Yeah, I think you, you that was definitely a part of it. Obviously, that wasn't the only de- deciding factor. Um, but for us to stay stay close to home, like you said, we already have a house here. 
and uh, you know, not have to move, not have to figure out the whole logistics of, of that transition, uh, especially during a time like this where there's a lot of unknown of what's going to happen and when, uh, you know, when things are going to start up and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I think a lot of the things you said before that all factored into, um, in, in, into my decision. Did you ever dream of playing for the Dallas Cowboys before in the past, Andy? Yeah, I, I, being from Texas, you know, you always follow the, the, the Cowboys. I'm originally from the Houston area, but uh, for a, a lot of the time when I was growing up, the, the Cowboys were the only team once the Oilers left. And so, um, so you know, I think it's one of the things. It'd be, it'd be cool to play in, in Dallas. It'd be cool to, uh, you know, when you, as you're growing up, you, you'd love to be a Cowboy. And uh, so now it's, it's uh, you know, I, I think it's a, a pretty special opportunity for me. Did anybody from the organization give you any warm welcomes after you agreed to the deal on Saturday night? Jerry Jones, Stephen Jones, Coach McCarthy, anybody else reach out and say, welcome, Andy? Yeah, I, I've talked with Jerry. I've talked with, with, with Mike. I've talked with, um, you know, several other coaches, too. And so um, I, I think everybody everybody's looking forward to this, and, and I'm, I'm glad to be part of this organization. What will you remember about your time in Cincinnati? Really? A tremendous time there when you think about it. all the games that you won for an organization that hadn't won much in the past. Unfortunately, never won a playoff game, but your accomplishments there were tremendous. Got a lot done. How will you remember your time there from 2011 to 2019? Yeah, I, I, I think the one thing you think about is all the friendships that, that you make along the way, uh, all the different teammates and coaches and, and different people that you meet. You know, to be in Cincinnati for nine years, uh, we, we really enjoyed our time there, and uh, you know, to not a lot of people get to play in one place for for their whole career, and much less get to play there for nine years. And so, um, you know, I've, I've we've we've there's a lot of special things about our time in Cincinnati. Our, I spent basically my whole married life there. Um, <laughs> three kids ra- raised there, so wow. um, there's a lot of a lot of fond memories. Since uh, then, always uh, hold a, hold a good special place in our heart. And uh, also with the foundation that that we were able to to run there, I think we were able to impact a lot of people and and and, and give a lot to the community. And so um, Cincinnati is a special place. You bring up the foundation and giving back to the community. What did it mean to you to donate? And if my math is incorrect, please let me know, Andy. But I believe that your foundation donated one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to help the city during the pandemic. What did that mean to you? We did. We know there's so many. There, there's a need all over the place. But you know, for us, Cincinnati what, what has been our community for so long, and so uh, we wanted to make that donation. We wanted to to give to help help fight this this virus and to to help in any way we can. And so, you know, I think that's we've been able to meet so many special people and so many people that are right in the middle of of this fight. And so, um, you know, that's why we wanted to to donate there and. And to just uh, just show our appreciation for everything that 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 they're doing to to try to stop this during this time. And you talk about what a special place it is and was to you, Cincinnati. And again, that time there, you managed to go to three Pro Bowls. Uh, you threw for over thirty-one thousand yards during your time as a Bengals quarterback. Take me through what it was like to find out that the Bengals were releasing you in your time with the organization that you had spent your entire NFL career with was over, Andy? No, I, I think I, obviously I knew the situation I was in uh, with them, them drafting Joe, and I knew that they were going to draft Joe. And so, uh, you know, when, once that decision was made and after the draft, you know, I was just pushing for them to, 
uh, to just make a decision on what my future was going to be. I felt like I had been patient throughout the whole process. And, and so, um, you know, I think it came to the point where, I mean, it, it, they, uh, they felt like it was best to, to just move on and, and release me. And, you know, uh, I think that it, it I think it's going to turn out best for, for, for both sides. And so, um, you know, I appreciate my, my, my time in Cincinnati, but I'm excited for the future and, and what's ahead for me. And they released you that morning last week. What do you remember about that morning? Uh, that it, it was uh, kind of a whirlwind. I didn't really know what to expect. And so, um, you know, I, I think, you know, once it happened, there's uh, just a, a lot of different phone calls and everything. So, um, so yeah, I think that's, that's the thing. I'm excited to know what the, what the, the, the future is for me now and uh, to just move forward uh, and, um, you know, excited to be part of the, the Dallas Cowboys now. Pretty amazing that a lot of people thought that you might spend this season working with Joe Burrow, and now you'll wind up spending the season working with Dak Prescott. Again, just hard to imagine the idea of that, just a strange concept to me. Yeah, like I, like I mentioned right at the beginning, it's like I would, never would have thought that that would have been the case. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm happy about it. I'm happy I'm, I'm getting to be back in Texas and, and um, you know, just working on this, this next part of my career. You bring up the next part of your career. You're 32 years old. You turn 33 in late October, October 29th. What do you envision having left in your football career, Andy? Give me an idea as we look into the crystal ball of your NFL feud. Yeah, I, I feel like I have a lot of years left. You know, I, um, I feel like there's a lot of good football left for me. And so, you know, this year's to uh, hopefully just keep keep improving and, 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 and make myself better and then uh, see what happens next March when I become a free agent. And so um, I think that's the that's the thing. You know, I feel like there's, there's a lot of good football left for me. I feel like I can bring a lot to the table, and uh, I'm excited about what's going to happen. Hey, Andy, thanks for taking the time to join us today, especially on your wife's birthday. And <laughs> That's right. Congratulations on the new start. Very exciting. I really appreciate taking the time today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. And for those who don't know, it's Andy Dalton's wife's birthday on Monday. She was kind enough to grant him permission to take some time out of his day to step away from her and her birthday celebration be with all of us. So we thank Jordan Dalton and Andy Dalton for that time. And now the medical director for the NFL Players Association, Dr. Tom Mayer. Hey, Adam, how are you? How is everything going? Everything's great. How's the family? You know, everybody here is uh, just grinding along, Dr. Mayer. You know, yourself? Well, you know, it's a marathon, not a 100-yard dash. And Yes, uh, we know that. Got it. Got to treat it as such. I mean, it's easy to say, but harder to live on a day-to-day basis, that's for sure, just on a personal level. But, uh, no, I'm, I'm great. I couldn't be better. Uh, I'm, as I always say, you know, I'm vertical in a world of horizontal people. So who wouldn't be happy with that? When you talk about the fact that it's hard to get by in a day-to-day world, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that, you, you know, whatever the new normal is, is going to be anything but normal. And and I think that's evolving uh, over time. I mean, you, you know, we're we're being introduced to these new people who are ourselves. You know, we're thinking about things. I think in different ways. And uh, you know, who was it, uh, Frankel, who said, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we're challenged to change ourselves. And I think that's where we find ourselves. Uh, which I, personally, I think is uh, 
has absolute capacity to be enlightening, to be helpful, to foster relationships. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, strategically optimistic about how this changes us in positive ways for the future. Well, it forces everybody to take a look at themselves, their lives, their relationships, everything. Like there are little moments that I have, Dr. Mayor, right? I'm like, oh, I can't just go get my hair cut. Oh, I can't just go out to dinner. Oh, I can't get a massage. Something like that, that I would treat myself to every five, six weeks, right? A simple little thing like that, that was good for my physical well-being and my mental well-being. And little things like that are just out the window. Life as we knew it is out the window. My family and I were at home. We're at home every single day. It used to be, and I think you'll understand this, right, where I work from home. I've worked from home for an awfully long period of time. I love working from home. But every week, every other week, I get to go to Bristol for a day or two. And something like that's probably good for everybody, good for me, good for the family. It makes everybody appreciate everybody a little bit more. And now we're just all in the house, and we're all in this together, literally and figuratively. Does that make sense? I think that's absolutely true and, and typically uh, pe- penetrating in terms of the insight. You know, it really is a different uh, world and a different type of world. And uh, and so to me, it's, it's it gives us a chance to look at change in a different way. You know, I always uh, advise my players and the medical directors that I work with, uh, both with the NFLPA and as an emergency physician, that you have to have a strategy for change because the only constant in this new world is going to be changed. And so you have to have a strategy for it. How are you going to deal with it? How are you going to approach it? How are you going to sort out the positives from the negatives? And, uh, you know, it's, it, I think for a lot of people, it makes them dust off uh, whichever either philosophical uh, mentors that they might have from, from centuries ago, uh, spiritual, if the folks are so inclined, to start to to realize as uh, Viktor Frankl and Epictetus and all the Stoics and most Eastern and Western religions have told us that, you know, the only thing we can control is ourselves. Uh, we can't control what happens to us. So we have to learn to control uh, how we are going to react to it and how we're going to turn it towards a positive as opposed to a negative. So in that sense, no one likes where we are, but the question is, how do you use where we are to make something positive happen, and if possible, kind of pave the way for uh, a different approach to life than perhaps the uh, this rush of electrons in which we live uh, has forced us to move so quickly. And I think this helps us become a little bit more pensive, a little bit more reflective, and a little bit more interactive with those we love. Talk about positive developments, and it's been two weeks since we last spoke with you. Give me something that you think is positive and trending in the right direction that gives us hope. Well, it's a great question, and I would say the main thing is is that the scientific people that we assigned to the task force and to the subcommittees uh, have been hard at work meeting virtually, of course, uh, weekly, lots of phone calls, uh, not ex parte calls, but, but work done uh, in, in addition to the task force and the task force subcommittee meeting. And so they're, they're very hard at work. And, uh, you know, you set an obstacle up, they're going to find a way to knock it down. Now, have they all been knocked down? No. You know, you saw reports that, that said that, uh, you know, there's an extremely uh, small likelihood that the NFL season won't be played in its entirety. 
you know the old saying, uh, Adam, you might have invented it. You know, those who know, don't say. Those who say, don't know. Uh, so while I don't think that's true, as a matter of fact, I know that not to be true because we haven't knocked down all those obstacles. It's all about player health and safety, uh, staff health and safety, you know, coaches and, and NFL support staff, and fan health and safety at some level if we talk about the stadium. So the good news is that um, – that they're every day these folks are hard at work. I'll give you one piece that I think if this works out could be a game changer. And that is, as you may know, uh, DARPA, the Defense Agency for Research Projects Administration, kind of the skunk works, these mad scientists that work for the Defense Department. And one of their, um, one of their areas is, is the biotechnology, which was stood up by my great friend Jeff Ling when he was still with DARPA has discovered a way to, to use the molecular test for the virus, but instead of using a swab, using blood to do that. And their preliminary research finds that uh, if, if it's borne out, that in fact you could uh, project a much earlier time when someone was exposed, probably within four to five days of their initial exposure. Whereas, and the test is fairly immediate within an hour, versus having to wait two or three days for the test to come back. As we look at a, a strategy of combined isolation uh, and, uh, of the players and the, and the people interacting with the players and testing, that, if, if it is borne out, and much of the work that DARPA has done in the past has been game-changing, that could be a, a very important development. So we're watching that very, very closely. Our fingers crossed there. We certainly could use that. This also is the week... Dr. Mayor, in which the NFL is planning to release its schedule. In general, we've got a, we've got a schedule, but how realistic is it that we're going to get to see that schedule play out? Well, the, the uh, Polish-American uh, the scientist, uh, Count Korzybski, once said that the map is not the territory. The compass will tell you the territory. And, and the schedule, to me, is the map. Uh, it's fine to put it out. Uh, that's really between Dee and Roger. But until we can solve the equation of how do we protect players and their families, as well as the, the uh, group of people who are around them, as I said, coaches and staff, trainers and physicians, um, that's where the compass is. The compass is how do we protect them? How do we maintain health and safety? You know that we are uh, guiding uh, lights in terms of the NFLPA. Number one, health and safety are non-negotiable. Number two, we'll go anywhere the science takes us but nowhere it doesn't. And number three, whole player, whole life, whole family. So put those three together, that's what we have to solve for, uh, not a somewhat arbitrary schedule. So with that in mind, you referred to earlier in our conversation the fact that you were optimistic, confident, whatever the word is, that there will be football this season. What do you base that on? I base it on, on the hard work that these – and as you know, we the, the task force and the subcommittees have – have sworn to um, confidentiality, not about the fact that they are in existence, but about their deliberations. Because we want these crazy ideas. You know, uh, every idea is a good idea until proven scientifically that it couldn't work. And so uh, I'm optimistic. I'm as optimistic as the first time we talked, and perhaps more so, uh, because I see the hard work that these guys are going into. Now, that said, uh, I don't believe I ever said I guess we could check the tape, as the saying goes, that that meant uh, a full 16-game season uh, with fans in the stands. 
you know, um, I'm, I'm, optimi- I'm still optimistic equally or more so that there will be football, but that uh, relies on a lot of work yet to be done, a lot of questions yet to be answered, uh, a lot of obstacles that have to be knocked down, which I think can be. Could you see fans in the stands this season, Beckerman? You know, it's about chapter 24, and we're on about chapter <laughs> 5. I thought we'd get a philosophical answer here from you, so go ahead. Yeah. Well, my point is that we don't start with the assumption that there would be fans in the stands. And um, I don't think that fanless stadiums mean fanless football. Uh, that's just my – I'm not speaking for the NFLPA. I'm just trying to say that, uh, yeah. you know, there's – there's uh, it's entirely possible NFL Films could put out a better digital product, meaning <laughs> more cameras and, and, you know, more spiders, all those kinds of things. Um, those special cameras, you know what that is. Your viewers may not. Uh, but, uh, but it, you know, I, I never started. We never started. The NFLPA never started with the, the, oh, we can't play football unless we have full stadiums. We said we, we need to be able to play football if and only if we can keep the players and their families and the NFL support staff safe. And so that's the part that I'm optimistic about. That everybody will be safe, kept safe if there is football. I think that's, you know, we owe that to the to the communities. We owe that to, I mean, one of our subcommittees is, is medical ethics, is ethics. And, um, you know, I'm not disclosing any discussions of that subcommittee, but the issue was raised about, you know, what are our ethical obligations to the fans and what are the fans' ethical obligations to the broader community? Um, we, under considerations, are questions like, if uh, I, let's just go with a full stadium occurred, even with, you know, you and I are just old enough to remember the, the days when you had to have a doctor's note. You know, you got to go back to school after being out. You had to have a doctor's note that said you were OK. Are we going to have to have doctor's notes that say that this person does not have the virus or, or you know, has antibodies to the virus? All those kinds of different uh, ways of looking at things. But w- what would happen and this is what we have to think about, is what would happen if we had, call it 60,000, 80,000 people in the stands, and several days later, a week later, a uh, massive outbreak of coronavirus occurred within that community that was traced back through contact tracing to exposure at the stadium. Well, boy, that would be, uh, you know, I would say irresponsible to, uh, to, to do that without a clear idea of, what are our best predictions? Because nobody is saying that we're going to eliminate risk. This is not a risk elimination equation. It's a risk mitigation equation. So driving it to zero, nobody's that, that silly. But driving it down to a level that we protect the players, we protect the people around the players and their families, and, um, and we protect the communities. You know, it's interesting, as I'm listening to you describe this scene what it could be like, what it would be like. I think back to the article I read in the New York Times yesterday, and they had a reporter on the scene, in many scenes, I guess, in Hong Kong, Australia, uh, China, whatever it may be, and talking about their different ways of life since the virus, how restaurants seat people six feet apart, how schools are staggered, where they dismiss students at different times and have different days to teach students um, they don't allow gatherings of more than, I think it was 500 people in various places. The point being that the rules of society 
are redefined and rewritten. And we have not gotten to that point in our society yet to understand the full ramifications of this and where this is going, other than to say the world as we knew it will not exist. And we now need to figure out exactly how this is going to exist going forward. And that includes football, and that includes sports, and that includes concerts, and that includes going out to dinner, and that includes getting haircuts and massages and doing all these things. Everything is in the process of being redefined, reconfigured, recalibrated as we wait to see the new lives that await us. Yes, and and that's precisely right, because until we know what communities, the communities in our case, the, the, the 30 communities, because two clubs in um, New York and two in L.A., uh, those 30 communities, first of all, I, I look at the national numbers, the world numbers, but I immediately drill down to how many new cases, how many new deaths within the 30 NFL communities that we're dealing with. And, and what about the restrictions within those states and municipalities? I believe, the NFLPA believes, that it would be irresponsible to ask for a special exception to say, well, everybody else in the community has to do X, but we're going to do Y because we're the National Football League, National Football League Players Association. Similarly, uh, testing, testing, testing. We talked about that before, but that's supply chain, supply chain, supply chain. The logistics of getting the tests out there so that they can be used. We believe uh, just generically, and again, I'm not disclosing anything that uh, is confidential to those committees or subcommittees, that it would be irresponsible to divert testing away from uh, at-risk uh, community members in order to have enough tests to isolate and test our players. Um, so it's, you know, everything comes in time, and as the, the communities decide, the states and municipalities decide, we are going to open, this is how we are going to open these, these the uh, U.S. has a three-phase uh, plan to do that, and uh, we're going to watch and wait. So uh, that's why I think we have to keep our all of our cards open, you know, everything under consideration. And uh, uh, I can tell you uh, that nothing has been specifically decided by any of those task force or subcommittees, but lots of uh, things on the table to consider that will get us uh, or could get us to a safe place. Dr. Mayor, my last question today, Peter King in his weekly column this morning wrote about the fact that obviously widespread testing would be required for the NFL, first players, coaches, whatnot. And he was talking about some of the figures, estimating them in his own minds, and it came out to like 163,000 tests required for the season. He rounded it up to 200,000, say it's 100,000. But his point was that it would be rather selfish, piggish of the NFL to use that many tests. What are your thoughts on that, and where would the league be on that particular subject. So um, obviously I can't speak for where the league would be and the players association. Association. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, obviously look, I got the greatest job in the world. I answered to D Smith and JC Treader, our president and 2,500 players and their families. And, you know, those three precepts I gave you before, that's all I have to do is think, you know, people say, well, you gosh, it must be courageous to stand up to the NFL. No, it's easy. I mean, why? Because, when D and JC give me that mission, vision, and values, that's the easiest thing in the world. You know, as long as it's health and safety are non-negotiable, we'll go where the science yeah. takes us, and it's all about those folks. So uh, I did not see Peter's column. Uh, no offense to Peter. I just didn't get there this morning. 
uh, I was actually looking at uh, COVID websites as I do every morning. But uh, but for, it depends upon you. We talked about the uh, projections. There were projections of as many as a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand deaths in the United States. And, and why were those off? Well, they were off because the assumptions, which, which in the, these modelers, that's what they're called modelers, these modelers made an assumption on hospital beds that was far too high, and that drove ICU beds, and that drove ventilator beds, and that drove deaths. All by way of saying, it, it, you know, uh, it depends upon the assumptions you make of, of who's going to be tested, how frequently they're going to be tested, ranging from every day to every week. Uh, to, you know, following symptoms, uh, using wearables to look at respiratory rates, all those kinds of things are, are things that are, can be considered on the table. But, but I would just say I, that's not a figure I would reject out of hand. It may be slightly lower than that. It might be slightly higher than that. And that's why it's supply chain, supply chain, supply chain. If there is sufficient quantity of these tests and accessibility of the public to those tests, then I would say, uh, you know, it, it's a responsible way to look at a, a sport, at, look at a business, look at the livelihood of 2,500 men and say, is this a wise investment both for the community and locally? So I'm not trying to avoid the question. I'm just trying to say I think it has to be put in the context of where testing is at that time. Uh, as I've said, we believe generically that diverting uh, tests away from the community would not be a socially responsible thing to do. Well, Dr. Mayor, we missed talking to you the last two weeks. We're very happy to have you back again this week for your tremendous philosophy, perspective, and insight. We'll look forward to doing it again next week, I hope. And I thank you, as always, the time that you granted us. I always enjoy it. It's my pleasure entirely. Stay safe, and, and I appreciate you reaching out. And so there is the medical director of the NFL Players Association, Dr. Tom Mayer, who's back after we gave him a couple of weeks off to focus in on the NFL draft. And now that the draft is over, we are back to focusing on the state of our country, when we might get football again. And Dr. Mayer is a man in the know with great perspective and insight. And now that he's been kind enough to grant us some of his time, I turn it back over to my producer, Christina Buswell, who has some of your Ask Adam questions. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. We should ask Adam. So I've gathered a bunch of fan questions this week, and one fan wants to know, Maria Panova tweeted, Adam, has there been talk of what will happen if local politicians in states such as California, New York, New Jersey, if they aren't allowing training camps or home games to be played in their state, what will happen? Yeah, it's a great question, Maria. Look, you heard Dr. Mayer. And I think everybody doesn't have the answers today. We're all waiting to see how this turns out, what the federal guidelines are, what the state mandates are. Because if the 49ers, the Giants and Jets can't hold training camp, then would the league delay training camp? Would they make those teams move to another area where they could have training camp? Again, we're in the first week in May. So it's hard to say how this is going to play out other than we know that there is going to be more information that we need to digest and process before we can get to those answers, Maria. But everybody wants to know that, right? We're all waiting for training camp to start, and it can't until we know some of that information. So, Maria, I'm with you. I want to know the answers, but right now, we are all in a holding pattern in football and in every sport. 
Following along those same lines of what is going to happen in the future, David White tweeted, Adam, what are your thoughts on the NFL potentially playing in front of no fans? We've talked about this possibility in previous podcasts, but what if there actually are no fans? What are your thoughts on the impact that's going to have on the league? David, uh, we've talked about this, you're right, on previous podcasts, and I think there are a couple of impacts. Number one, the energy, right? And I know we can't compare it. It's not the same thing. But I'm telling you right now, you heard Trey Wingo refer to it on one of our previous podcasts. When you're doing the draft in a live setting, whether it's Philadelphia or Dallas or Nashville, you can feel the crowd's energy and it just comes through on the screen. And it's the same thing with players, right? How about running through a tunnel when there's no fans in the stadium? Usually the players come running out of that tunnel. They're all fired up. We see the Ray Lewis dance. We see players going nuts. But if there's no fans... What are they running out to? So there's a different energy, a different adrenaline level that comes along with that that I think players would have to recondition themselves for if there are no fans in the stands. And of course, there is the financial component, and I don't mean to come back to that every time, but I think it's an underrated, under-talked-about element to this whole thing because, again, and I'll give you the numbers, David, if there's no fans and the NFL plays 16 games... That means about a hundred million dollars less in revenue per team. That's about $3.2 billion less in revenue for the league. That means that the salary cap, which is based on the revenue of the previous year, would go down $3.2 billion. So it, it would drop anywhere I've heard from 20, 30, 40 million dollars per team up to 70, 80 million dollars per team, depending on all the revenue, depending on how much revenue didn't come in. So there will be a huge impact on the salary cap for 2021. And again, we're 10 steps down the line here. We don't know how it's going to play out. We don't know when teams are going to training camp, as Maria asked. We don't know how they'll, if there'll be fans in the stands, as you're asking, David. We know there's a lot of unknowns. We've entered the unknown. That's the day and age and the time that we're living in. And so until we have further clarity, it's hard to say exactly the full financial impact, but Again, the energy level without fans, way down. The revenue with no fans, way down. And the cap in 21, and the cap in 2021, if no fans, also down. So again, it's just adjusting and adapting to the new world order, David. I think this pandemic has impacted everybody on a number of different levels. One fan also tweeted into you, Adam, from one Adam to another, my hair is looking terrible. (laughs) You're supp- you're on TV week to week. How are you holding up in this situation, not being able to cut your hair, not being able to go out and do the things yeah. you normally do? What are you doing? Well, Adam, I appreciate the question. And, and honestly, I'm at the point where I don't really care about my hair. I, I, and I don't mean to say I don't care, but I, I really don't care. Like I saw a tweet from Colin Coward last week. I just ate a whole pizza and I don't care. And that's kind of the way I feel. My hair is growing long. My sideburns are bushy and I don't care. And maybe I should. But I just think it's symbolic of the time that we're living in. Everything's different. Nothing's the same. You try to keep some sort of routine, some sense of normalcy, and it's just hard to do. And what you eat is different. The way you live your life is different. Said to Dr. Mayer, you know, a a massage that I would get once a month, once every couple of months. I miss that. Uh... You know, I used to get, Christina, if I'm going to be honest here, every couple of months I get a facial. I love that. Like that, that is, that's my treat because 
they'll clean up my eyebrows, they'll clean up my ears, my nose, everything. So you're presentable on TV and I don't look like a caveman or a teen wolf. Right? But I haven't got a facial in two and a half months. I don't, I can't even imagine the next time. And so I know Adam's asking about my hair. Forget about it. I, I, I worry about my nose hair, my ear hair, and every other hair growing off me. I'm like, <laughs> the heck? Right? So, and I've wondered about that. Like, what do you do? And honestly, I guess when you're living in a time of a pandemic, you know, we're worrying about extra hair. The least of our worries, but it is something that I have thought about, Adam. And if I'm being honest, that's the way that that goes. And again, I bring up the fact that it's impacted everything. I just think of all the people that have had everything disrupted, right? I think of all the high school students that lost proms and graduations. Uh, my daughter who lost school and her friends and play dates, the people who had weddings planned, lost them. People with, you know, summer parties, whatever it may be, birthday parties, didn't have them. We even had a, an example here, Christine, if you don't mind me sharing it with you, where my friend's daughters were scheduled to graduate from Michigan this past weekend. And it was going to be on Saturday, the actual graduation. And of course it was canceled or postponed. And so they did a great thing. My friends did. And their names are David Simon and Jeff Rubin. They decided to have a Zoom mencement for their daughters and a bunch of Michigan grads. And at that point in time, asked me to be their Zoom mencement speaker. So what I did was I wrote a speech. And actually, you know what? Now that we bring it up, if you don't mind it, my podcast, um, if people don't mind, I'm going to share my little commencement speech here. And. Hopefully people get something out of it. But again, it's, I think, emblematic of the different times that we live in. But this was my virtual commencement speech that I delivered on Saturday to about 120 people that were on there, many of whom were graduating or scheduled to graduate from Michigan. So bear with me. Here's the speech. Being that this is my first ever commencement speech, a bucket list item, like getting a hole in one, I want to do it the right way, the way it should be done. So this is where we'll begin. Good afternoon to Jeff Rubin and David Simon, the men whom I graduated from Michigan with 31 years ago, and the proud parents of the newest Michigan graduates, Amanda Rubin and Lindsay Simon. Good afternoon to Michigan President Mark Schlissel, wherever he is, the school's board of trustees, wherever they are, the university's faculty, somewhere out there, the rest of the class of 2020, and parents, friends, and family of the class of 2020, all of whom I know are right here in a spot we could not have imagined in the Zoom instrument on this great and glorious day attending Michigan's virtual graduation. And this is not breaking news. We all know it too well by now, but it's not happening at the big house. It's happening in my house, your house, our houses. The Rubens have a big house, but I think everyone would agree it's just not the same. This is not what you ever expected nor imagined. But then again, whoever imagined a global pandemic sweeping the world? disrupting life, ending school, delaying weddings, changing plans. Yet one thing hasn't changed. It's still your college graduation, the day you've worked so hard for these past four years and really your whole life to achieve. It's still a day, even in this preposterous pandemic, filled with pride and perspective. At least you're getting your day and celebrating your way. I never got mine for my post-Michigan education. In graduate school, at the Medill School of Journalism, which to this day remains one of my few regrets in life. Rather than going through the graduation with my graduate school friends, I opted to begin my internship with the Seattle Post-Intelligencer 
because I thought I couldn't afford to wait to get the clock started on my professional career. So instead of putting on the types of caps and gowns that you're all donning for today's zoomencement, I rushed out to Seattle by myself and started covering the Mariners and Seahawks in Goodwill Games that upstaged and replaced a day that should have been permanently inscribed into my memory bank. I sometimes wonder what that day would have been like, what it would have been like to share it with my family. You don't have to. This is your graduation day, with you getting to be surrounded by your loving family and friends who have supported you from the time you were little victors, the triumphant victors that you are today. Commencement signifies an important new beginning, but also a time of reflection. Think about all the work you've put in. Think about all that you sacrificed. Think about how hard it was to reach this point and get to this zoomencement. Though it's not in Michigan, it is in many ways as memorable as it would be in Ann Arbor. It's not what you imagined nor what you planned, but guess what? Unintentionally, this has become the final lesson of your now-concluded college careers. It's one that's well worth remembering as you embark on the next chapter of your life. You're now learning that no matter what your plans are, they can change just like that. As Sheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer of Facebook, wrote in her book, Life Often is About Option B. Option B might not be at the forefront of your thinking, not initially, but it is one of the biggest and most important plans you can make. I'd even go one step further. Oftentimes, there has to be an option C and an option D and an option E because that's just how life works. You can plan to get a well-paying startup job right out of school only to find that nobody's hiring, that your chosen field isn't expanding, that you have to move on to one of your next options, either working side jobs to make some money or going to graduate school to gain further knowledge. It happened to me. It might happen to you. But the idea you have for your vocation today might be very different than the one that actually takes hold later. You can plan to go into one field, wanting to be a sports newspaper columnist, and wind up in a different field, working as a football television insider. This happens routinely. As you embark upon the next chapter of your life, it's great to have a roadmap to spell out a way to reach your goals. Just know that there'll be detours, quite possibly plenty of them, all along the way. You can plan to get married and start a family in your 20s, only to wind up waiting until your 30s or maybe even your 40s. There's no proven plan, no paved path that leads to finding the right life partner. Finding partners can be just as unpredictable as curing viruses, which is why you always have to be ready and prepared for anything. You can plan to graduate in Ann Arbor in the big house, as every graduating class from Michigan through time has done. You can plan to book flights, reserve hotels, rent cars, reserve dinners, plan parties, a virtual week's worth of celebrations, all ready to go, only to see it turn to a virtual graduation, like yours today. But this day worked out, and usually life does too. As you go from young adults to young professionals and venture out into a challenging world that is not nearly as kind as a college campus, here's what you should plan for. There are going to be peaks and there are going to be valleys. There are going to be ups and there are going to be downs. There are going to be cobblestone streets and they are going to be smooth ones too. It's all part of life. Embracing those challenging times on those bumpy roads will make you appreciate joyful ones even more. This has been a difficult time in all of our lives and there still are many more hard days ahead. So much already has been lost. Money, jobs, businesses, school, proms, graduations, 
sanity, and most important, life. But it's important at these times of trouble to hold on to the moments of joy and happiness. This, thankfully, is one. Through your sacrifices, your commitments, and your hard work, you now have completed some of the most rigorous academic programs in the world. You've met the academic standards at one of the finest institutions of higher learning in this country. You've earned this blessed day. At a time of shelter in place, you now take your place as Michigan's newest graduates, the class of 2020, the newest leaders and best. With some of the skills that you've acquired through studying at Michigan and living in Ann Arbor, it is your chance to move on to do your part to right all the wrongs in this world. Michigan taught you to write papers, solve problems, ace exams, engage people, and live life. Use those lessons to take on all the good and bad and know that plenty of both are coming. But if you know anything is possible, if you're prepared to recalibrate your life or your career or your expectations, then you'll be better prepared to conquer the challenges in front of you. This is your graduation day, not like all the other graduation days, but it's yours. And it always will be a milestone, a Michigan milestone that you remember. You're a Michigan graduate today. Saturday, May 2nd, as was planned and as you always will be. Congratulations to the class of 2020. This marks the end of your academic journey and the beginning of an altogether different one. It's a scary time to be leaving college and entering either graduate school or the job market. Everyone is adjusting, everyone's adapting, and very few will have their initial plans work out. It might just be the backup plans, option B, or C or D that work out. But you now have been given the training to make the jump from Ann Arbor to the real world. So go ahead, go forward, go blue. Congratulations to the class of 2020. And that was the speech I gave on Saturday, Christina. And I just want to repeat it in the event that any other college graduates out there were deprived of their graduation and enough were. And I thought that that speech was worth passing on as I've done on social media as well. So hopefully I didn't waste too much of yours and the listeners' time. But I want to thank you for those questions. I want to thank Dr. Tom Mayer for his time and insight today into the global pandemic we are now facing. I want to thank the Cowboys' new quarterback, Andy Dalton, and the 49ers' all-decade offensive tackle, Joe Staley, who announced his retirement. And thank you to the listener for tuning in to another Adam Schefter podcast. Please tune in later this week as we'll have a very special guest, a very special podcast coming up, which don't want to say more than that, but I think it'll be worth listening to. And until then, be well and stay safe.